Before we begin our main event, a brief reminder that Historically Thinking is now on Patreon. When you become a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room on Patreon, you not only support the podcast's weekly operations, from web hosting to scheduling to audio editing, you also enable us to do more in the future. Benefits that you'll receive as a Common Room member include a special weekly podcast, podcasts dropped in advance when possible, special events online and in the future live, input on topics, guests, and questions, competitions and prizes, and more. We will continue to produce our regular podcasts, which will still be available for free on Mondays in all your regular podcast feeds. We hope you'll enjoy being part of the Historically Thinking Common Room at Patreon. Just go to Patreon and search for Historically Thinking. Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast that's not only about the past and all its complexity, but also about how historians write history and how everyone can think about it. For more information about this or any episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can also sign up for our twice-a-month newsletter. Hello, my guest Richard Cohen begins his new book, Making History, The Storytellers Who Shaped the Past, with two particularly suitable epigrams. The first from the historian E.H. Carr. Before you study history, study the historian. Second, the historical novelist Hilary Mantel. Beneath every history, there is another history. There is, at least, the life of the historian. The life of historians is the subject of Cohen's book, and he ranges from Herodotus and Thucydides in the very long ago to Ibram X. Kendi in the 1619 Project of Just Yesterday. Since this is a book about how historians make history, it is therefore a book about how historians see the past and think about it. Richard Cohen is the author of By the Sword, Chasing the Sun, and How to Write Like Tolstoy. The former publishing director of two leading London publishing houses, he has edited numerous prize-winning and best-selling books and written for most UK-quality newspapers. He is a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature. Richard Cohen, welcome to Historically Thinking. Well, thank you for inviting me. So this is a big, big book about many historians, and I've been trying for four or five years to do a sort of continuing series on historians and their histories. I think I've gotten as far as Anna Komnena, uh, and really haven't gotten much beyond the reign of Augustus Caesar, to be honest. Uh, so um, it's uh, this covers the, all the ones that uh, those plus all the ones I should have covered so, uh, thus far. I, I thought in our conversation as a way of, of, of making our way through, we would talk about historians who were outside the guild. That might have been sort of the men who wrote history in the Roman in the Roman times. Or eventually, very much later, only in the last 150 years, people who are outside the professional guild. And who better to begin with than the most influential English-speaking historian of them all, William Shakespeare. Uh, People who find that a strange thing might reconsider because uh, as much as any historian of the 16th century might try, or 15th century might try, they cannot erase Shakespeare's grasp of the past. It's, It's... almost impossible to pry his grip off the off the Wars of the Roses. I absolutely agree, though I would perhaps take issue with one thing you said, yeah. that um, history has come to us mainly through what one might call academic historians. The opposite is true. Mm-hmm. From Herodotus and Thucydides, one a traveller, certainly a member of no academy, is more kind of exile. Thucydides, absolutely exiled, Uh, a disgraced army general, um, through to not just Shakespeare, but you mentioned the ancient Romans. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, um, they were all well born and had time on their hands. But the idea of being a professional historian is as about a foreign as those as those times had it as the idea of a historian at all. Mm -hmm. Um, And you then go on through Shakespeare, you know, our views of Richard III, Henry IV, young and old, uh, Richard II, let alone the Romans, Cleopatra, Caesar, and so on, are largely Shakespeare's views. And if you go through to the present day, Hilary Mantel's Cromwell is for years to come going to be our Cromwell. Uh Um, So um, I would argue that um, although I've got great respect for the great writers from the universities writing about history, they are a small percentage of the people who's given us our past. A very small percentage of those who shape, shape the memories of what we thought 
what we think happened. Yeah. So how would what is um, so let's talk about Shakespeare. Um, what how how does he why do other people write history plays before him? He just does it better. I mean, what's what's the reason for his focus? Do you think? Certainly, there are all kinds of people who were writing history plays. Um, Christopher Marlowe, his contemporary, for one. Um, and one of the points, really, that started my writing this book off was that all the people who have written or painted or acted aspects of history um, had an agenda. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it was a conscious agenda, sometimes unconscious. It took other people to point it out. And Shakespeare very much had an agenda. He was writing um, to further the Tudor cause. And while he might criticize certain points about um, the Tudor monarchy, um, he was politically extremely cunning. I mean, he had one run-in. And one remembers that when Richard II was performed uh, in Elizabeth's court, and she was there, obviously, and she bent forward and said in a loud voice, Richard II, that is I who am being shown. Um, and Shakespeare had very carefully to disavow he had any such intention. And I believe yeah. the Earl the Earl of Essex and his co-conspirators, Richard II was played to them before their attempted yep, coup. Absolutely. So Shakespeare was a highly political figure. And it wasn't just him saying, well, um, various figures in history are interesting to write about. I mean, two-thirds of his 37, or if you like, 38 plays are built on historical figures. It was because he had things to say, not just about human nature and life in general, but on a political sphere as well. So, so what do you think are his big things to say about the political sphere use, uh, and, and, and the past, for that matter? Uh, well, one of the things that runs through a lot of the history plays is the right to rebel against a, a ruler whom you think is evil, misguided, bad for the country. And over uh, his history plays, uh, and that includes the Roman plays, um, he was preoccupied with whether you could uh, rightly rise up against a, a person you thought was a tyrant um, uh, or um, other criteria which you felt justified your actions. And obviously, um, he had to be careful um, because if he said it was right to rebel, then Essex and others would say, he's our man, he's giving us license to try to overthrow the, overthrow the Queen. Uh, but then uh, uh, it never goes, well, sometimes it never goes particularly well for those who do rebel. I mean, there certainly isn't... Uh, isn't Henry the Fourth's killing of Richard the Second then a preoccupation of the continuing plays, a sort of stain upon the family? And likewise, uh, one can make out Brutus as a as a as a noble protagonist, but then things don't work out for him either. I mean, now he's following fact in this case, but he's also then I think this is sort of second is is thing about the role of fate and happenstance in human affairs. Well, Shakespeare's view of the world is always larger than. The particular lines he takes in any one particular play. Um, but, I mean, you could argue that even in something like King Lear, in the end, order is brought um, to England, albeit um, by a foreign power. Um, um, Hamlet may end with the stage strewn with dead bodies, but again, you've got Fortinbras saying um, the, the proper order is restored. Mm -hmm. um, whether you think that's um, a political uh, canniness um, um, or whether you say that's in the nature of most of the major tragedies, uh, I'm not well versed in Shakespeare enough to say. But um, there's always, um, I wouldn't say a political subtext, but he's always alert to um, all the ways his plays might be taken. And I write a lot about um, his idea of the Machiavel, mm -hmm. um, of the figure who's cynical, amoral, um, both comments on the action and, depending on his uh, position in court society, 
um, very keen to take advantage if he possibly can. Um, and that's a, really a new figure, and yet it's one who appears in at least half a dozen Shakespeare plays. And I, I think I'm right in that it, it, the only one of those figures who has a play named after him is, is Richard III. Um, it, he is both the Machiavelli, but in some ways the protagonist of the act. Yeah, um, you still get some pretty major figures. Mm -hmm. I mean, the bastard mm -hmm. uh, in Lear, Edmund, uh, sorry, not Edmund, um, yes, Edmund, um, becomes not just an onlooker, but one of the major figures um, fighting for political power. So um, they can often have very active parts, they're not just commentators. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, you know, despite the, the, the the poor people at the Richard III Society, however much you push, it's really hard to overturn the rock that Shakespeare put on top of Richard III's, uh, you know, reputation. Well, um, it's interesting. One of the, the, the points about that reputation is it was part of Shakespeare's portrayal of Richard III to have him as a hunchback. And now uh, it's not just the... Um, finding of Richard III's bones under a car park in Leicester. Um, but um, anatomists saying that it wasn't a hunchback, it was a particular deformation, utterly different from what hunchback faults involved. Um, but, you know, if you think of the venom, if you like, with which Shakespeare portrays Richard, um, it's the business of creating a great evil figure mm -hmm. and whether it's um Waterman in the Henry Potter uh, series um, um I mean literature is full of great terrible characters mm -hmm. and Shakespeare knew what he was doing well let's uh move forward to your your chapter of novelists as past masters which brings us to someone I've never talked about is Walter Scott um, and Walter Scott is uh, perhaps not the first historical novelist, but um, like Shakespeare, uh, he focuses upon the past and he has a particular message that he wants to sell about the past. He has a particular past that he wants to, that he's, that he's, he's, uh, he's describing to his audience. So, so what's, what's, Scott's, what's Scott's message about the past? Well, he was a great nationalist. He was brought up in border country um, and he was Scottish through and through and wanted to um, assert the importance and the vitality of Scottish history and Scottish culture. I mean, some of his novels um, have such broad vocabulary, Scottish specialist jargon, that they were, they were published with a special glossary explaining the terms. Yeah. Um, but um he wanted to go back over recent scottish history um and as it were tell the scottish nationalist version he had suffered um polio when he was a child and was farmed out to um beardy the grandfather who refused to um cut his hair um to shave until the scottish cause was um, triumphant and got from him all these amazing stories um, uh, about Scottish history. And of course, Scott began as a poet and um, published um, Scottish ballads, which if he didn't think they were good enough, he had um, didn't pause at all before rewriting them to make, make them better in his view. And then along came Lord Byron, um, who himself loved Scott's writing, um, but uh, Scott, who was actually producing work too quickly, realized that Byron was a better poet than he was, and so turned to fiction, mm -hmm. uh, which he began by publishing anonymously, um, although uh, in his circle, everybody knew it was him. Um, and it's, it's hard to overemphasize the titanic success that he was. Uh, how could we, have you thought about, how could we put that into contemporary sort of terms in terms of just in the sort of the checks that came from the publishers or sales. Well, I mean, they were immense, weren't they? Um, they were tremendous. Jane Austen wrote 
um, to her sister complaining that Scott shouldn't turn to fiction because he was, he was doing other novelists out of a pretty penny. Um, um, Scott's influence arguably has been greater than any other historical novelists ever. Mm -hmm. um, and it was an influence which didn't just strike the English speaking world. It went into um, Russia, Spain, Germany, um, they all had historical novelists who were often told, Victor Hugo wrote The Hunchback of Notre Dame because his publisher said, write a novel like Scott. Um, and it wasn't just that he was um, trying to promote Scottish history and Scottish culture. He's making a lot of it up. Um, that, you know, the idea of bagpipes, which are in fact invented in Egypt, um, of kilts, of a whole range of things which nowadays people think of as being centrally Scottish, mm -hmm. were centrally the product of his imagination. But it was part and parcel um, of um, making Scotland an important nation. Um, and as Hilary Mantel, writing about Scott, said, um, this version of Scotland is all Scots now. We take our lead from him. What uh, what other novelists, particularly in the nineteenth century, should we think of as as creating a sort of um, I hate uh, I hate this phrase, but I'll use it a usable past or an, a, a sort of an imagined an imagined past. I mean, as you say, Scott is quite literally imagining a past, which then people take up as if it was that is the actual past. Um, well, there are a huge number of them. I mean, the nineteenth century is so rich in wonderful fiction. And whether um, it's Mrs. Gaskell or Dickens or George Eliot um, or Trollope, I mean, there are different ways. They gave us a recreation of what they thought was the past. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I think that um, my youngest son who's traveling in South America said, I'm trying to read a, a novel and a nonfiction book at the same time. And Daddy, I know it's late, but I'm reading your book on how to write like Tolstoy, which is looking at novelists yeah. through the years. I said, okay, so what's the novel you're reading? He said, Middlemarch, <laughs> putting the two together. Well, Middlemarch gave you a sense of um, not only Middle England, mm -hmm. but it gave you a sense of what married life was like across the classes um, in uh, the, the late, mid to late 19th century. Um, and, you know, it's not a book about great events. Um, it's bringing to life society in all its richness. Um, and one might argue, although there's some wonderful exceptions, that that's particularly what the novel, the historical novelist can do rather than the academic historian. But sh and she's writing, um, she's writing, what, 1870, thereabouts? 1860, 1870? About, a, um, about, yeah, yeah, setting in events just 30 years prior. So it's like someone writing about the early night where we could write actually be very appropriate now, probably sell well, someone writing about the end of the Cold War, but doing it about a small, a family in a small town in Britain, Russia or America. Um, yeah, I mean, one shouldn't just keep it to British writers. Right. Um, when you think of the, what I think of as the, the social realists in, um, in France, um, who went out of their way to say, we're going to recreate society in fiction. Um, and not just Hugo, um, but Flaubert um, and Zola, um, well, um, Stendhal, um, they had a mission. I mean, their main mission was to make some money, but, but beyond that, but they wanted to say, we're filling in what the history writers leave out. Mm -hmm. And they saw themselves as writing social history. Well, you've written a whole book, as you say, you just mentioned on how to write like Tolstoy. And we would be remiss to move on without having talked about, you know, what people always say, the greatest novel, War and Peace, is a historical novel um, and uh, uh, a meditation from, a meditation of how Russia has gotten to this way uh, in 1850, written in 1850, uh, about the Decemberist Revolution, but then you have to like move the telescope even farther back to 1805, 1803, 1804. So um, 
how does Tolstoy, I mean, we could spend the entire time talking about this, but how does Tolstoy recreate Russia? Well, remember, he began as a journalist um, um, in Cossack countries, fighting back reports on what he saw. Mm -hmm. And so he took on all the reporting gifts, or at least um, uh, sharpened them as he went on. And he did a huge amount of research before setting down to write War and Peace. Um, and um, what's odd, two things I'd say, because I, I do think War and Peace is a wonderful book. Um, two things that are odd about it. First, he didn't want to call it a novel. Um, he wrote to his publishers saying, it's not history, it's not novel, it's not poetry. Um, he didn't want to have the book defined and thus confined by giving it a particular label. And I think that's interesting. Mm -hmm. Of course, the other thing is not just in the two epilogues that are attached to the novel, which sometimes would be excluded um, in various editions, but also throughout the book, you get um, Tolstoy's agenda, not just to tell it as it is, but particularly to um, put the knife into Napoleon as being a great man um, or a good man or even someone who really affected history. And when you think that, you know, um, he was alive at the same time as Thomas Carlyle, who was absolutely at the center of the great men theory, no great women in Carlyle's world, um, Tolstoy was saying the exact opposite, that history happens because of the concatenation of a thousand small details and a thousand or 10,000 individual lives. Um, and you know, a lot of that is tendentious um, and rereading uh, War and Peace, I've read it three times, um, I, I do kind of skip some of the, the historical theorizing. Um, I, I, um, I think that, we, you know, people, people like to, one way of dividing up the, uh, the human race is uh, those who, well, I have a friend, dear friend, I didn't read War and Peace until I was in my 40s, which I'm very happy about. Um, I'm glad I didn't waste it on myself earlier. Uh, and I was reading it and I got to the epilogue and I looked at it. I thought, I know already know he, he already told me all this. I don't need to read this. A friend of mine uh, who listens to this podcast, uh, you know who you are. Uh, he said, oh, I wish I just read the, I ended up just reading the epilogue. I didn't need to read the rest of it. Uh, and I think that I, hopefully that's a minority of the human race, I think would probably just prefers the epilogue to the rest of the novel. Myself, I don't see the point of it. I think that really is a minority. <laughs> like... Tolstoy had bees in his bonnet. Um, actually, thinking of bees, I was thinking in my book how to put all of Tolstoy in the essence of his writing into a short passage. And I quote when he writes about the emptying of Moscow mm -hmm. as the French start to... Um, near the city, and he chooses the image or the metaphor of a dead beehive. Mm -hmm. And again, he must have really researched that because the details are so amazing. But in describing a dead beehive, what you get is a real historical sense of a city that's been evacuated. Mm -hmm. And it's just a, a leap of imagination, which I think is fantastic. It is. But in terms of other bees in his bonnet, um, it's interesting that Alexander Solzhenitsyn, um, when he was writing um, about Stalin, rather, I think, one shouldn't call a great writer vain, but most of them were, he wanted his portrayal of Stalin to be like Tolstoy's depiction of Napoleon. Oh, absolutely. And it's it, it's a kind of deliberate homage at the same time as it's saying, goodness, look, look, uh, I'm of his stature. Mm -hmm. And one could argue, you know, going back to what we were saying about Shakespeare, that Solzhenitsyn changed our understanding and knowledge of Russian history more than any other writer. Yeah. More than any professional historian, certainly. Absolutely. I mean, and certainly there uh, had, has had, had more political influence in the late 20th century uh, than certainly any historian did with anything they ever wrote. 
Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting. There's a new book out, which I haven't, I haven't read yet about Stalin's books, Stalin's library. Uh, but it's uh, just as it is very hard to get beyond Shakespeare's Richard III or, um, or Tolstoy's Napoleon once you've let them grip you. Um, you know, Solzhenitsyn Stalin, who's engaged in this feudal and silly, you know, I, I believe it's in the first circle where he has Stalin working on a, this, uh, an article on the socialist theories of mathematics and putting people in their place. He's writing about something he doesn't understand with instruments he can barely comprehend. Um, well, and, and, and it's not, it's very unfair probably to Stalin. It's fair to him as a dictator and a monster, and yet unfair to him perhaps as a reader and a thinker. The fact is, unfortunately, he combines both. Well, um, he was not only a poet. I, I suspect that you, like me, have never read Stalin's poetry, um, even in the <laughs> translation. Um, he was also a reporter, um, and um, there aren't many poets among people who have been, let alone tyrants, national leaders. Um, but he also, um, which is one of the things which must serve the noise Solzhenitsyn, rewrote Russian history. He got rid of a whole galaxy of leading Russian historians and dictated what the textbooks used um, in Russian school, Soviet schools should be, which is, of course, exactly what Vladimir Putin has done. Mm -hmm. um, and there's, um, I quote in a chapter called Bad History, um, what Putin has done in um, getting serious historians dismissed mm -hmm. and getting henchmen um, who weren't even historians, good or bad, to look after what's taught in schools and colleges to give a proper view of, of Russian history, which of course is an, un, an improper one. Yeah, you can see almost the, 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 the stages of the Putin regime, and we're moving away from, but it's all right, this fits in, that can be, I think, almost tracked by the way in which the state uh, under Putin treated the organization memory. Uh, I forget the Russian name, which yeah. was to memorialize memorial. Memorial, yes, memorial, which was to memorialize the victims of the gulag. Um, and it was always it always skated on thin ice, even in the the heyday of of liberalism in the nineties. And ever since, the screws have been put on and on and tighter and tighter until right before the invasion of Ukraine, it's basically been eliminated. Um, and that seems to track that control of the past, the control of, I mean. A, play, a thing called memorial, the control of memory, tracks with the progress of the regime and from mild authoritarianism to basically now totalism. Well, you, of course, would know about Thin Ice. Isn't your surname um, associated with the main Thin Ice production? It, it, it is, although we like to think that it's Thick Ice that we produce. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, Solzhenitsyn uh, said, you know, the truth will come out, but it may take generations for it to do so. And that's the problem that, um, you know, in the terrible events happening in Ukraine, one knows that only a very small percentage of Russians are getting bits of the truth because Putin's control over the country is so absolute that mainly young people um, who are tech savvy are finding ways to get Facebook or or other means to, to learn what's happening. Um, but I am a, a member of a fencing club. It's my, in my great age, I still continue to do, um, which was founded by a Ukrainian. And there are about five Ukrainian coaches, all very good, two Russians and two Belarusians. And politics is strictly forbidden because at least two of the Russian Belarusians Think that think that uh, Putin was absolutely justified in a in a um, procedure to to save the country. Hmm. Um, so um, the battle for truth telling in history um, has gone on for you know two and a half thousand years or more. Yeah, well, there are um, to move to other leaders who have influenced the past, perhaps in a less um, obnoxious or uh, iron-fisted way than. Uh, Joseph Stalin or Vladimir Putin, um, the, of the writing of memoirs by actors uh, uh, in history, there is no end. Uh, and I want to touch on two people who 
lived fairly close together, but are very, very different, except for their passion for cigars, actually, come to think of it. Ulysses S. Grant and Winston Churchill. Um, that would have been an interesting conversation between the two of them. But um, let's talk about Grant as um, as a memoirist. I mean, you're... Big a, Grant would have got a word in edgeways? No, no. I think he would just, he would just, he would have listened with some amusement, perhaps. Uh, he, he was a, apparently a very good one for listening with a twinkle in his eye, all his aides would say. I had put Grant's memoirs, I mean, so remarkable because they don't discuss his presidencies at all, at the very top of works of history, along with Julius Caesar, I think. What, what, why do you, what, what makes them, and you're, you're, what makes them exemplary? People always say this, um, and I, they're fine, but what, what do you think makes them so exemplary? Well, for a start, they're exciting, hmm. just as Caesar's commentaries are. He's writing about his childhood, um, the Mexican War, and the Civil War, and he was in the thick of it, and he has great narrative skills. And he said, rather, one senses, annoyedly, why do people think I, you know, either use Mark Twain or that I shouldn't write well? I had to write orders to my officers that were succinct, short, absolutely to the point. Um, and that was my training for when I turned to write memoir. And it's a very interesting point because if you, I've, I've, after I, I, when I thought about that once, I looked at his orders, the orders that he wrote, which he includes a lot of them in the book, contrast them with Robert E. Lee's orders. And Lee probably didn't write as down as many orders as he should have. And what's very clear is Lee's orders always come across as suggestions. And they do, but also there's a southern floweriness to yes, it. Yes, there are. They're, they're, too, they're just too much. They're like flowery suggestions. Um, now, one would never say that Churchill uh, excluded floweriness. But, you know, when you think that volumes upon volumes, greater than you know, Shakespeare and Dickens combined and so on, um, what one gets from the kind of factory he had working under him, people... You know, people have written books simply on Churchill as a historian mm -hmm. um, and are fond of saying, well, he really didn't do all the work. He had all these people deviling for him. Um, and there are times when, in his history of the Second World War particularly, he simply reproduces government papers um, without changing them at all. Mm -hmm. But above and beyond that, the people who were part of the, the, the Churchill factory said, we'd give something to him. And he would then, more often than not, rewrite it into Churchill prose. Yeah. And um, he was a great grammarian, something of a pedant in the use of English. And at his best, even though I don't know how many people read Churchill now, um, he was a superb stylist. Yeah, well, I've read all of The Life of Marlborough. I don't know how many people have done that. Uh, well, and, and that's, I mean, it's obviously... Uh, I, of course, he didn't do all the archival research that he keeps referring to, um, but it's him. It's his voice. And it's also his, an argument is maintained consistently throughout that is obviously his argument as well. One of his main researchers said, um, a metaphor I rather liked, um, a gourmet chef may not prepare all the vegetables or all the sauces, but he is the overall he could nowadays be she, is the overall chef and manager of the whole enterprise. Mm. And that's true of Churchill. It's interesting to compare get back to Grant, too, because to contrast them, Grant was also a grammatical pedant. Um, yep. uh, a lot of the his aides report, you know, there are conversations around the, you know, uh, campfire. Um, Grant was always criticizing certain use and uh, of grammar. And there's that wonderful thing in his, I think, last month of life, where he says a, a, a verb conveys to be or to suffer or to exist, no, to be, to, I can, I can, I now am all three or something like, I, I'll look it up and put it in the show notes, but there's. When I was at high school in my first year, age 13 at a school in England, we had an English teacher who said in any sentence, the verb is the most important word. And I, clever clogs, I, as I was trying to be, saying, but the noun in the sentence or understood to be in the sentence is also vital. 
um, and no sentence can do without it. One of the interesting things about Grant as against Churchill is Grant, one feels, and for most of his writing it's true, was exceptionally modest. Um, Churchill, one would not describe as modest. Um, but both of them wanted their version of history to be the one that the public believed. Mm -hmm. And in Grant's memoirs, he settles scores. Um, he disagrees with um, others on the Union side who've, who've written accounts of the Civil War. Um, he's no you know, shrinking violet who's just telling his own personal story. Um, he had a view of the, of the kind of history he wanted to go down. But he does it always so artfully. Yeah. No one ever, you never, as you read it, you have to go back and see the dagger, go back to reread to see the dagger go in. Um, yeah. Usually. I mean, as opposed to Churchill uses a hammer uh, to, to squash the flies that annoy him. And Grant just flicks them away. Well, you say that, you know, they were both um, hugely interested in language. Grant is a minimalist. Mm -hmm. You you will get metaphor, but very rarely. Because that, I'm not saying putting ideas into his head, he would regard as flowery. But it was going off the point. Um, it was drifting away from the center, his central focus. Churchill loved metaphor, mm -hmm. loved... Uh, quoting um, from world literature, particularly British literature. Um, he was, although Grant was, was much better read than people gave him credit for, um, and at West Point... Particularly um, himself. He, 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 I think, you know, um, oh gosh, it's uh, Brooke Simpson, who's my favorite biographer of Grant, points out how Grant can be very deceptive in, and like Washington, actually, in this regard, in, in what he actually read. Uh, he was much better read than he, he... He wanted people to believe that he didn't read as much as he actually did for some reason. Um, but Churchill, unlike Grant, also had, of course, a super-developed, overdeveloped sense of humour. <laughs> and sometimes when he's being at his most outrageous, it's, it's tongue-in-cheek. He was poking the bear, aware that the bear was in a cage and he was outside, um, well protected. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's, I think, you know, it, it's its not done really to applaud Churchill as a historian now, um, but that sense of humour is one of his great qualities. Mm -hmm. And you don't find that many historians who have senses, have senses of humour. No, unfortunately not. Uh, and speaking about uh, someone who has no sense of humor, let's talk about uh, let's talk about David Irving, um, and uh, sort of and lying. Uh, we, we touched on this with Putin a little bit. Um, could you just very briefly could we talk about the uh, the curious case of David Irving? Uh, and and I, I have to say that my my father used to buy a lot of he traveled a lot internationally on business, and he would get paperbacks, and he would then read them on the plane, shove them up onto the you know onto the bookshelves. And that's how I did a lot of reading. And I came across this biography of Rummel, which was great. Uh, and I read it and I remember coming to the end and thinking, this is really strange. This author, whoever he is, kind of wants to prove beyond shadow of the doubt that Rummel was always loyal to Hitler. That's odd. Um, you know, he was sort of, this author was defending Rummel against charges of being an anti-Hitler German. A strange. And then, of course, years later, I realized it was it was David Irving. Well, I interviewed David Irving. He had lost in the libel case. He lost um, all his money, yeah. um, but not the support of thousands of uh, Nazis. Um, I went to a flat which is owned by one of his supporters, and um, Irving was genial. Uh, uh, um, a friendly host, which always makes one feel very careful. One doesn't fall into the trap of being super polite. Um, and his uh, Hugo was the name of the first name of the flat owner. And I know that David Irving's uh, younger daughter uh, was there because she awoke from a very late sleep, I think about 11 o'clock, and stumbled into the drawing room 
where I was interviewing Irving. And I said, do you read any of your father's books? He said, no. Um, but Irving could be playful. We, he, he bet me that he remembered um, Harry Truman's wife's first name, as against me saying it was uh, um, Betsy. Yeah. Um, and I forget whether he actually put a sum on the bet, but we had, a, I think, just a friendly bet. And um, he later wrote saying, he didn't apologize. He said, gruffly, you were right. Um, but um, it's very strange talking to an obsessive. Yeah. They can be obsessive about beekeeping, yeah. um, let alone um, Hitler and his generals. But um, after um, I left, we had, I was there for about two hours, um, he then sent me chapter after chapter, I hadn't asked for it, um, of the biography he's writing about Himmel, about Himmler. Um, and again, a lot of the research was brilliant, mm -hmm. um, but it was all skewered mm -hmm. so that it began with um, Himmler being beaten up in a British prison mm -hmm. as being the most important thing he had to say. And um, outside of um, Nazi and German history, he was trying to convince me that Churchill knew about the attack on Pearl Harbor um, and said it's never been properly proved that Churchill didn't know about it. Well, it's never been properly proved that um, Grant knew that Lincoln was going to be assassinated. Um, but that's not the right way to put forward um, historical ideas. No, that's not how we um, deal with evidence, I don't think. <laughs> but, you know, a lot of it, a lot of the time, um, he was just not renting at me because it was controlled and avuncular um, because he was an accomplished speaker as well as an accomplished historian, um, him spinning his version. And what's worrying about all the historians one might talk about who um, put across false history is how able they are in the ways of doing it. Um, they've got all the good speaker and the good writer's arts at their disposal. Yes. And also they have the, the, the monomania can be an assistance. Yeah. Um, they are so focused and concentrated on this one thing. They, they, they've swatted up on the topic much better than you ever will because of their, because of their obsession with this topic. Uh, you know, so if I, if I'm talking to someone like David Irving about whatever, could be stealing second base for all I know. Um, but it, 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 you can't cope in terms of the sort of volume of stuff that's being poured on your head. And how are you to tell whether or not it's relevant? This is, it's, it's like talking to a one person internet. Um, but that's, that's part of the fake historian's art. Mm -hmm. um, I interviewed Henry Kissinger and I was told, um, the secretary wants to see all the question, questions you must ask, and you must limit them to 20. So I did a huge amount of reading, and in my questions, you know, um, posed politely um, questions I thought were safe about Metternich and people who had been leading figures in the formation of Kissinger's um, worldview. Um, but... Um, a lot of other questions that were more probing. And I was then told, the secretary is very busy, limit your questions to five. <laughs> so I limited my questions to five and I went to see him um, at his business address in New York and was ushered in bang on time. And he wouldn't answer any of the five questions. He said, come back when your book is written and then I'll talk to you about history and my views of history. Um, but I do quote him in the book as saying something which is not stupid and, of course, goes back to, to Grant and Churchill. Um, in the introduction to um, one of his, I think it's the first volume of memoirs, which I think won the National History Book Award, whether you call it history, well, 
I would, because I think memoirs can be. But he says, the one great advantage that someone who's been in the thick of things is they know what was said in a particular important conversation. They were there and um, they may lie about it, but they are crucial on the spot witnesses. Um, and that's one of the things about Grant and Churchill that though they might twist certain aspects of history, they do know what's actually true. Although I, I do quote um, President of the Creation, mm -hmm. um, um, where, what's his name, who wrote it? Dean Acheson. Yeah, Dean Acheson um, uh, sent what he'd written uh, about one particularly momentous conversation um, to a friend and said, look, um, you were there. Will you check that what I've written is accurate? And his friend wrote back and said, uh, Dean, everything you've written is absolutely spot on. You've got a fantastic memory, except for the fact that you weren't actually there. <laughs> uh, so... Um... Let's, uh, as we close up, let's uh, have to hop over some of the things I wanted to talk about and talk about TV. Um, so for the last, uh, well, actually, the, 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 what are called teledons in Britain, uh, they go back much farther than people realize. Um, we could even go back all the way to the radio if we wanted to. Uh, but the um, television and the historian have uh television has had the effect sort of like uh, the gravitational pull of jupiter on a very small spaceship um it it really grabs a hold of them and sort of directs them in a different way and it's i mean it's inevitable uh as no no one needs to tell you that i mean you appear on tv and you get like a uh, hundred more emails than you do for every email you receive about a book it's just the way it is um, uh, and so the teledon is a phenomenon probably more in Britain than over here, but they both, it has, it does have a disproportionate influence. Well, when you think of it, three of the best known teledons in America are British. Mm -hmm. Niall Ferguson, Simon Sharma, Mary Beard. Yep. Um, but I would say something about teledonship, which I hope isn't a real word. Yeah, man. Um, People sometimes say, what made you write this book, Richard? And I give one bit of personal history in the preface to my book. Um, it actually came about because I wanted to read about historians and their agendas and how history had developed as a way of thinking and writing. And the book didn't exist. Um, and so I thought, okay, I better write it. Um, and I then say in the book there's a chapter on british academia and i tell about hearing the story which i think is an urban myth but when i was told it i was told it was absolutely true by someone who'd been the assistant editor of the daily telegraph obituary pages uh -huh. i don't know any other member of any other obituary pages but anyway i was at some kind of party and found myself talking to him. And he said, you know, one of my predecessors went to see the editor and said, um, this is in the, the, the early 60s, we've got no um, obituary of Hugh Trevoropa, who at that time, I mean, he was known um, in the States, but in Britain, he was one of the great, great figures um, everywhere. He wrote so many essays, so many articles that um, people in the street um, if they didn't know any other historian would know him. Um, anyway, the editor said, well, that's certainly a gap. Who do you think we should get to write it? And the deputy editor said, I thought I'd ring A.G.P. Taylor. Well, A.G.P. Taylor was at least as well known, better known in America, um, and probably better known in Britain in that he wrote not only for upmarket magazines and papers, but he'd write for anybody. All the tabloids would ring him up and, um, he would oblige. And of course, he was the original Teledon. He was the first historian talking about history on British television. But the two men, Trevor Roper and um, Taylor, were absolute rivals. They didn't hate each other. 
but they hated to think that one was dominant uh, over over the other. And so when the deputy editor went to Taylor, Taylor said, an obituary of uh, Hugh. Yes, I think I could do that. And this killing obituary where all the facts were laid out, um, but by the end of the piece, you know, Trevor Roper's head was no longer attached to his shoulders, uh, to his neck or whatever. Um, and so the deputy editor handed it in to the obituary's editor who read it and realised he had something of a scoop on his hands. And he said, well, well done. And the deputy editor didn't move away. So the deputy the obituary's the, uh, editor said, uh, anything else? And he said, yes, uh, um, we don't actually have on file an obituary of A.J.P. Taylor. <laughs> and a smile crossed this guy's face. And he said, OK, go to it. And of course, Trevor Roper then said, um, yes, I think uh, I can take that commission. And an equally deadly obituary came in. <laughs> and it was the custom, as with all uh, decent papers, that obituaries would be sent to the authors for updating. And... Um, a secretary in the obituaries department, not a major role um, in any newspaper, sent out the AGP Taylor and Hugh Trevor Roper obituaries, but she got it wrong. And Taylor got his own obituary with author attached, and so did Trevor Roper. Now, I don't care whether that's true or not. And I, I checked with a friend of mine who was editor of the Daily Telegraph and with the current obituaries editor. But what's true about both men um, is their professional lives were vitiated, really spoilt by their longing to become public figures, mm -hmm. their love of publicity. Um, Trevor Roper was, had his career ruined by his authentication of the so-called Hitler Diaries. Um, doing it too quickly, um, he couldn't read that kind of um, Germanic script uh, very well. Um, and when he um, died, um, the, the obituary in the Sunday Times, he was the director of the, on, on Times newspapers, you'd have thought they'd have been kind to him. The headline was uh, Hugh Trevor Oprah, Lord Dacres, he became known, um, uh, hoax by the Hitler Diaries dies. Yeah. Now, that was his epitaph. And A.J.P. Taylor, um, in trying to think of clever angles on the Second World War, um, ruined his reputation by, um, again, being a clever clogs, doing counterfactual history. Uh -huh. um, and so you get two great historians in their way um, having their reputations really diminished because of their rivalry and their love of publicity. Mm -hmm. And uh, and in, in some ways they were, um, if only they had known about Twitter, then they could have really ruined themselves. Well, now I, I tried to be obedient to my publishers and on my last book um, to go on Twitter. And um, I tried to do my... Um, was it you were allowed 48 characters no, initially? Yes. I tried to write about my 48 favourite heroines in fiction. <laughs> um, and that was great fun to do. I shouldn't think it sold a single copy. Yeah. Well, it's uh, it's now we've gotten to the point, as a friend, of mine, a friend of mine on Twitter says, one of the worst things you can read, begin a tweet with is, historian here, exclamation point, which as I point out to him is not only an appeal to authority, we've reached the point where we appeal to self authority of our own self. So it's both a logical fallacy and narcissism, which is, yeah. which is a, but one thing impressive. which seems such an obvious thing to say, um, is history has two meanings. Mm -hmm. It's the past and it's the depiction of the past. I was going to say the writing of the past, but you know, I've got a whole section on the Bayo tapestry, which I think is a hugely important Fantastic, um, yeah. work of history. Yeah. Um, but once you realize that history very often as a word is being used in the sense of it being a filter into the past, then people, I think, would take a more wary or open-eyed view of what they're reading. And also, I suppose, one of the themes of the book 
is how history writing has changed over the centuries, um, developed or undeveloped over the centuries, in that it was at the time of Herodotus, it was a new thing, not just in Greek culture, but in uh, what was to become Islamic culture and um, many parts of the world, what writing about the past or orating about the past um, should or could be. And that developed into chronologies. I mean, the Chinese had massive chronicles, but they were just the barest detailing of what the writers believed to have happened. Then you go into annals, then through um, um, in the English Middle Ages, um, um, people writing marginalia or comments um, in the Anglo-Saxon chronicles, which were kind of public statements of events, mm-hmm. uh, which you would find in churches um, and public places. And people would add marginalia of what they felt um, had been missed out in those statements. And then you get gradually evolving the notion that people could use their individual judgment. And then you get um, through um, Voltaire and Gibbon, the one great thing they have in common is saying that individual judgment doesn't have to bow down um, to the Christian churches, whether it's um, the Catholic church ruled by the Vatican or the various Protestant offshoots um, we do not have to have God in his heaven to write history, uh, which, of course, was massively attacked. And in the 19th century, you get a stream, a deluge of people writing uh, in defense of a Christianized version of history. But um, I'm not quite sure where I'm going with this metaphor. The dam had, the dam had broken. Um, and you then get into um, Leopold von Ranke, who really, um, having found in Rome, these amazing diplomatic reports from uh, Venetian ambassadors. When Venice is one of the main states in Italy, um, it had the most learned, quick-witted um, literary figures going out to all parts of the world and reporting back on what they saw. And um, this gave von Renke um, not only wonderful material, that helped shape his reputation, but also gave him um, a view that using original sources was crucial to any good work of history, um, um, writing history as it is. Um, and he went on to develop, as his second kind of gift, um, really what doctorates should be um, and um, the relationship between um, a university professor or senior figure, and the person who was doing their, their um, specialist study. Um, and by the last quarter of the 19th century, um, the notion of what studying history should be spread from Germany into all the leading intellectual centers of the world. Um, and this was at a time when um, the sciences, so-called sciences. Um, I love uh, Carlyle calling economics the dismal science. Um, uh, held great sway and prestige. And von Renke wanted history to join, have the same authority, which is why he talked about it as a discipline. Mm-hmm. And why he said there are certain ways in which history should be studied and written to be respectable. And that really set the way history was written for 150 years, 140 years anyway. Um, And it did, in some ways, historians a great service, but for anything else, it gave them a career. Mm -hmm. um, That was nice. A job. But in other ways, it was a real turning away from the idea that people outside the universities could write valuable history. And I, sorry, I've gone on for a few no, minutes no, on that. It, it, I think it's so, it's so important to an understanding of how, how history has been written and how um, a certain line of academic historians didn't ruin history writing, but um, drained the life out of it in many cases. 
And Simon Sharma, um, I towards the end of the book, I quote from a lecture he gave um, in, in uh, Jerusalem um, a few years ago, where he said, we've got historians, the academic world, have got to discover the strength of narrative. Um, they mustn't, by quoting obscure sources, show off to their, their peer group. Um, it doesn't matter how many footnotes you have. I, uh, I have two anecdotes about Simon Shama in that regard. Is one was uh, when he was uh, hired at Brazenose in Oxford, supposedly one of the fellows, it's Brazenose mythology, I don't know if it's true or not, said, we should, let, let's hire him. He writes good sentences. Uh, <laughs> and the second thing is, I think this is actually true, is he wrote back in the days of this thing, children called a fax machine. And he wrote Citizens, his blockbuster breakthrough book, he would write longhand and drop a page in the fax machine to the publisher. Uh, I, I, I heard that from a friend of his who swore it was true. Um, uh, and so that was a narrative for sure, uh, although not one in which he had a lot of time to edit at, first, at least at first. Um, let's say- you, should get, you should get Robert Danton yeah. giving you his views on citizens. <laughs> I, I, I think I could I think I could gloss those already. Um, let's uh, I want to conclude just for five minutes. We've, we've skipped a lot of stuff, but um, I, you've been in publishing for, let's just say, a while. Um, and you've seen uh, how has the publishing of history changed over your professional career and uh, where the heck is it going right now? I mean, I guess that's a larger question, but where's publishing going? Uh, which and no one knows the answer to that, so that's fair. Um, but how how would you say the publishing of history has changed? Um, I entered publishing in 1973. Wonder I'm still alive. And I joined the publishing firm, which is then the biggest general trade publisher in Britain, of William Collins, who's then called. It's now, of course, Harper Collins. And um, about a year into my being there, I was taken on. I'd been in no book publisher before. I'd been in magazine editing. Um, I was taken on as a commissioning editor. My title didn't change in the five and a half years I was there. But the year in, um, one of the editors, who was a very fine historian, a man called Richard Ollard, um, who wrote about the English Civil War spectacularly well, um, took on a book which had been published, two-volume book, which had been published in France, and it was Braudel's book, on the Mediterranean. And um, I read that for the first time um, with kind of jaw open. I'd never seen history written that way. Because one of the things that's interesting is Fernand Brodel, first of all, thought he was going to be a doctor. Um, and um, then he wanted to be a novelist. So as it were, at the centre of his creative being was both a love of diagnosing and the wish to tell things well, yeah. to put a literary spin on what he was writing about. Yeah. And I think that a lot of that has been has been lost. Huh. Well, I, now, I can't imagine Harper Collins taking a two-volume book on the age uh, the mediterranean the age of philip the second i mean that's that's I, no no commissioning editor is jumping up and down saying you know hooray i've gotten this it's crazy it's crazy to think of that happening um the um senior publisher of one british well-known publishing house um has taken over the whole of um, the history list um said to her predecessor a couple of years before, before their appointment. Don't give me any history. I can't stand the stuff. Um, and um, yet, good history can continue to sell. Mm -hmm. And I write in the preface, uh, at least 20, um, I wrote them down, very fine historians now writing. And in fact, I was asked to name, you know, the week does book five books of your choice on a particular subject and I was trying to think of my favorite works of history and again although this isn't current it's published in 1959 um, Mattingly's book on the Armada is I think one of the great works of history um, 
I think it made Simon Sharma's best, his uh, personalised list of the best works of history ever published. But it's got tremendous narrative verve. It took 10 years to write it. It's otherwise um, teaching. Um, and um, I know that um, I took 10 years over my book, but I was editing at the same time. And my wife used to come home, and if I was on the telephone, she'd be able to tell immediately whether I was talking as an editor or as a writer. Um, and I was given, you'd have thought I was the obvious person for this, I was given a biography um, of a African-American by um, an African-American who was a tenured professor um, at Columbia. So I was neither white nor American um, um, nor of the politics of the chosen subject of the biography, which was Malcolm X. And um, the author of the biography was um, called Manning Marable, and he was shortlisted for the History Award and won the Biography Award, or the other way around, I can't remember. Oh. So it's an exceptional book. But we went through, he said at one point, Richard, you've made me rewrite the introduction 19 times. Is this really necessary? And I said, you've got to unlearn what made you a tenured professor? Hmm. You know, I'm not impressed by showing off. And he's he's so nice a man. He put he put up with this pipsqueak saying such things. <laughs> I said, you've got to tell the story. And by the end of it, because he's a very bright and lovable man, uh, he told the story and did it exceptionally well. My guest today has been Richard Cohen. He's the author of Making History: The Storytellers Who Shaped the Past. Richard Cohen, thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you. Just a brief reminder, if you're listening to Historically Thinking on the website, that's great. But for your convenience, you can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Pandora, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, GeoSavin, Podchaser, TuneIn, Deezer, and there are more. In fact, wherever there are podcasts, there you can find Historically Thinking. While great reviews are wonderful on whatever platform you want to write them, the best possible review that you can give us is to forward the podcast to a friend you think will find it interesting. You can also follow us on Twitter at hist underscore think or on Facebook. <laughs>